I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and go with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. When you have that, if you'll stand with me as we read God's Word, beginning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You may be seated. I hope this morning the Lord will add to the reading and the hearing of his word. I want to ask you a question as we begin this morning. I want you to think with me about how often you feel the pressure to do everything on your own. And it can be in a lot of different situations. We don't have to get overly spiritual with this. Uh, We can relate it to a lot of different situations in life. Maybe it is a situation where you work, where it is your responsibility to accomplish your task and there is no one else. Uh, That was definitely the model that was pervasive in decades past in areas like manufacturing where you had your role and you did your role. You know, many things now have moved to more team-based work, but, but then it was definitely driven. You had a certain amount that you were to accomplish, and it was your responsibility, and if it was not done, it fell on you. Maybe if you're a student this morning, you feel that way at school. 
Maybe you feel like you've got to get it done and there's no one else to help you. There's no one who's going to assist you in getting it done. Maybe this applies to your household and you feel like you're the one who's holding it together. And nobody else is helping you. You're the one that gets your family through the day and the week and the month. And the hope is that you make it into the future. And that responsibility is completely on you. This is a very common pressure for people to feel. I think it goes across the board no matter if you're rich or poor, if you're educated or uneducated, if you're, if you're famous or infamous or not known at all. There is this pressure constantly pushing us to accomplish things, and we often feel like we have to do it by ourselves. I fear that this is one of the dangers even in the society in which we live, because our society really values individualism. It it values the, the whole idea of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Some of you are not even old enough to know what that means, but... It's a term. It means you do it yourself. It used to be one very popular in our society. But that's a, that can be a very dangerous idea. Because if we get it into our head that we have to do everything on our own, we begin to develop some problems. See, this idea of individualism often bleeds into our religious philosophy. You've got to do it yourself you got to get there on your own. It's something that is still taught even in our churches and our houses of worship. In Jesus' day, this was a big problem. If you look around at the context that Jesus lived in, if you look around at the people around Jesus, those, especially the religious leaders, were teaching that you've got to do this yourself. And so they had made all of these rules, and if you'll follow all of these rules, then you will be okay. If you'll keep yourself clean and you'll take care of yourself by following all the rules that they had put in place, somehow, some way, you are going to be in right standing with God. That's what was taught. And I fear that's what continues to be taught. As a matter of fact, I would say that if some of you are honest with yourself, this would be what you believe that it takes to have a relationship with God. That you've got to work at it so much and you've got to be good and you've got to do the right things and you've got to be, you've got to get there on your own. See, we have this belief that we must really work to please God. That that somehow God is sitting there And he's not pleased with us, but if we'll do the right things and if we'll be good enough, he'll he'll somehow be impressed with us. We need need just enough good things and good deeds for God to like us. As a matter of fact, maybe you're here this morning because this was on your checklist of things to do to make God happy. Happy. Well, church, that one's kind of obvious, right? You know, we've got to help little old ladies across the street. Check. We've got to, you know, be nice to our mean coworker at least once a week. Check. And we've got to go to church. Check. Check. And some of you put money in the offering plate, and I'm glad about that. That's three checks. 
But that's a really bad way to look at our relationship with God. It's a, it's a really bad way to begin understanding what God is doing. See, too often people orient their lives around trying to please God by their works. As a matter of fact, I would say that for some people it is an addiction just like any other. I've seen these type people who who had no true and strong relationship with God, but they they had to get all their check boxes right because they, they wanted to keep God happy. And they were constantly worried that if they did not check off everything, that God would somehow not be happy with them. This is what we would call in the church a works-based righteousness. It's this idea that somehow you can be righteous before God, you can be clean before God by all the stuff that you do. We unfortunately think too often that, that if we work at it, that somehow we'll find God. And unfortunately, this is how we present our God to other people. It's impressive. I've never had that before. So at least it wasn't the drum thing with the... Isn't that what we end up teaching people, though? We end up trying to teach people and tell people, well, if you'll just be good enough. You know, we look at people who are who are stuck in the worst sins, who are dealing with the most difficult circumstances, and we we somehow get it in our mind that if they'll just do better, God is going to like them. If they'll just do better, they'll find God. Here's the reality. None of us find God. The expression, you'll be familiar with this, when we, we see someone who's just really bad, you know, they're in jail or, or they're, you know, a bad drug addict or they're a bad alcoholic or they're abusive to their family and, and, and something happens to them. What do we say? Well, they found religion, right? You know, or, or we look at all these rock stars from the 60s and 70s and they, they no longer do their drugs and they, they no longer rock and roll and some of us are sad that they don't rock and roll anymore. And what did they do? They found religion. But this expression could not be further from the truth. See, none of us in this room today found God. The good news for us this morning is that if you know Christ, if you have been saved, it's because God found you. He went to that place that you were where you were despicable and ugly and unlovable, and he found you. And he pulled you out of that. And you didn't do it. And I'm awfully glad about that, at least in my case, because if it was left up to me, it would not work out very well for me in the end. See, I would go do my own thing. I would live the life I wanted to. I would go do whatever, and I wouldn't be worried about it. But because God found me, he pulled me in, he grabbed my heart, it changes everything. And we need to be aware of this when we present God to other people. 
See, if we tell them that if they'll just be good enough, if they'll just do enough stuff, that they'll eventually find God, they're going to end up very depressed. How can they find God? See, some of you have never been deeply entangled in sin. I'll be honest, I haven't. I, I led a pretty good, good life. I didn't get into a lot of trouble as a teenager. I got married young, and that saved me from probably getting into a lot more trouble. But some people are deeply tangled in sin. They've been snared by its trap. They're deep and in dark places. Many of you have never been there. But if you have, you understand the fact that if you were told somehow you've got to work your way to God, you've got to get your way to God, that would be the most depressing news ever. Because it's simply not going to happen. See, they're never going to get right enough for God to love them. They can't. But we need to tell them the truth. The truth is that there is good news to be found in Christ. While you are never going to be good enough to get to God, you'll never work enough, you'll never do enough, it doesn't mean that you can't know God. See, God has made a way for us who are tangled in sin, who are hurting, who are depressed, who are sinking fast to know him. And that's what our text talks about this morning. And that's where we're going to begin at in verse 1. See, this idea that somehow we can work our way to God is what verse 1 calls a shadow See, that's an illusion that we can work our way to God. It's an illusion that people would see in the old law because they would see, okay, I can do all of these things and somehow that'll make God happy. So if every year I go up to the temple as they did in the Old Testament and I make a sacrifice, somehow that's going to make God happy. And if I'll give him this incense offering, and if I'll give him this offering of a slaughtered animal, somehow that's going to make God happy. But that's a shadow. And if that's where we believe our relationship with God is, then we're never going to be satisfied. Look what he says, for, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The, the sacrifices that they were making were not the true form. And therefore, complying with these things, doing what had been said in the Old Testament, was never going to give them what they really needed. And it wasn't intended to. You know, God gave them the law, if we go back into the book of Exodus, He gave them the law so that they would see that they were insufficient to save themselves. You know, it, it would be the same as us giving our kids who often think they're smarter than we are. And it takes them to get to at least a certain age before they are. Like when we're dead and gone. It would be like us giving those kids who believe that they're smarter than we are a task for them to see that they're not smarter than we are. See, I love to do this with my children. 
And it's easy. You can do it with yours. Here's my parenting advice for the morning. Algebra. One-step algebra blows a kid's mind. Until they get to the point where they're doing that, I mean, we've got, where's the Tar Heel who's studying mathematics? You know, he probably understands a little bit of algebra. But you take a nine-year-old and you throw up A plus B equals C and fill in a couple variables, and they are messed up. And I can do it in my head. You can wow them. That's what God does with the law. He gives us this, knowing that we're going to try it. We're going to try to follow all the steps. And we're going to get to the end and go, wow, God is still so much greater than we are. And by the time this is written, the people of God had got to the point where they had taken his law and they had added to it and they had added to it and they had added to it. And they still could not get close to doing what God wanted them to do. And so he tells us here in verse 1 that this law that we have, this law that was given is just a shadow. It's not even the true form. It's not even the real stuff. It's just to show us that we're not good enough. Now some of you are thinking this morning, I knew that already. Some of you realize that you're not good enough. And I want to tell you, that's a really good place to be. See, a bad place to be is to think that we're somehow good enough to get to God. That because we live in America, because we've got some money, because we do some good things, because we've never been to jail, or because we've never committed this crime or that crime, that we're somehow good enough to get to God. The reality is that we're all sinful And he says here, compliance, doing the law, doing the things that he has said is not enough. If we were to look over in the book of 1 John chapter 1-8, it tells us that we're all sinful. And he says, if you think you're not sinful, you're a liar. It's not my word, that's his word. You can take it up with John in heaven if you get there. And that's going to be hard if you don't think you're sinful. Just throwing that out there. He says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. He says, because we are sinful, it doesn't matter how good we are. See, they would go every year, every year, make these sacrifices, but it never was good enough. As a matter of fact, look in verse 2. He says, if it was good enough, then why didn't they cease making these offerings? Now think about this. This this takes a little thinking, but he says, Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Now obviously when he says consciousness of sin, it doesn't mean they wouldn't know that they're sinful, but consciousness of sin is about our guilt. So if they were forgiven, why would they keep going back and doing it over and over again? Why would you keep doing something that wasn't necessary. Why would they go back every single year, go through all the ritual, spend all the money, spend all the time? You have to make that walk all the way to Jerusalem from wherever you live. You have to go there. You have to wait in line. You have to have this animal slaughtered. You have to take it back. You have to fix it, prepare it. You have to sprinkle this blood everywhere. Why would you keep doing that if you were forgiven? Well, that doesn't make any sense. But friends, that's what so many of us try to do all the time in our relationship with God. We keep trying to be forgiven again. Well, if I just do enough, 
if I'll just listen this time. I think that's why so often we get stuck in these sins that just happen over and over and over again because we keep trying to fix them, not, real, not realizing that God has forgiven us of them. God has taken care of it. It doesn't need to be taken care of again. We don't need to be forgiven again. God has forgiven us completely. But that's what they did. They went every single year. All the time. He says in verse 4, or verse 3 rather, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of the sins every year. Instead of being forgiven, instead of allowing God to forgive their hearts and move on, what did they do? They went every year to make a sacrifice. What did that do? It reminded them that they were sinful. Now most of us want to take the sins that we have committed and we want to put them away. We don't want to deal with that anymore. We don't want to live in that anymore. But they would go every single year and remind themselves that they were sinful. And then they would do it again. And then they would do it again. And the priest would make sacrifices every single day. And what would that do? That would remind the people that they were sinful. There was no forgiveness. But he gives us good news. If you look here, there are He quotes these verses in verses 5 through 7 from Psalms 40. And he talks about God not having a desire for sacrifices and offerings, but rather having a desire for obedience. In verse 7 he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Christ came to do God's will. He came to finalize this once and for all. There was no use in these sacrifices being made every single year. Verses 5 and 6 tell us they're sacrifices that God just simply took no pleasure in. And so Christ comes because he follows the will of the Father, and we get what we could not earn by constantly making sacrifices and constantly trying to do things to please God. You and I get it. We, we get what we could never earn because Christ comes and dies for us. Christ follows the Father. He gives his body, which is what God demands in verse 5. And his body becomes the sacrifice. And what it does, if we look down into verse 10, is it, it makes us sanctified. He says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. They weren't there. They weren't sanctified. They weren't forgiven once for all. They had to come back every year. But he says that you and I have been forgiven permanently. This word sanctified here is something having been made holy. It's something It's something that was dirty and filthy being cleaned. And when God sanctifies something, it remains sanctified. When God makes something holy, it remains holy. So you think about this. We, 
We strive all the time to do stuff for God. We, we keep working at it and, and tugging and pulling and trying to crawl our way toward God. And we get to the end of that and God looks at us and we're still filthy and nasty and dirty. And, and let me be honest with you. You ever had one of your kids get down and crawl through the dirt? You ever got down and crawled through the dirt? Crawled through the mud? The further you go, the worse you get. The further you crawl, the longer they do it, the dirtier they get. And that's exactly what happens if we try to crawl our way to God. Because the further we go, the more we try to crawl our way to God and and claw our way to God and pull ourselves through, the more arrogant we become, the more self-centered we become. Our humility goes right out the window. Our pride level is always on the rise. Because if we think we're getting closer to God, look, look, I'm doing it myself. I'm getting there. So we get dirtier and nastier and filthier. When what God wants to do is reach down and pick us up, clean us off, and carry us wherever he wants us to go. There's no more doing it ourselves. There's no more getting there on our own. God wants to do it for us. He wants to take care of us. We can't get there on our own. It's not going to happen. And when we try, it'll be met with failure. See, God takes no pleasure in us trying to do things on our own. But because Christ was obedient, we are declared holy by God. We are given his righteousness. It's not our attempt. It's his. So why is this good news? I want us to look at these in these last few verses. He, he tells us why this is good news. This is good news for us because the one gain, who gained righteousness for us now sits at the Father's right hand. So he has given us his righteousness. He has given us his holiness. We can't do it on our own. But look, verse 12, when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. His enemies will be taken care of. We have good news in that his enemies will be put down. I think one of the great enemies to what God is doing is our own pride, our own efforts. It's definitely the context in which he is talking here in this verse. And so now Christ, who took care of all of this for us, he sits at God's right hand, the place of authority and power, and he is waiting until the time when his enemies will be defeated. Next, in verse 14, it's good news for us because he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. There's a lot of churches this morning, unfortunately, who are going to teach the people who are there that when they're saved, God saves them or whatever. But if they do anything wrong, they've got to go back and do that again. If they do anything wrong, that that salvation that they thought they had is not very secure. If they do something wrong, they're they're messed up and they need to go back and they need to do the whole thing all over again and they need to make sure that everything was done right and, and it's not going to work for them unless they go do it again. And that's a problem. Because look what he says right here. He says, for by a single offering, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Friends, the good news is that it's not our works before God, and it's not our works after we know God that save us. Now, there's people who say, well, we know it's not before, but, but you've got to do all these good things to keep God happy with you. Mm-mm. If that's the case, we're all still in trouble. Because how much good do you have to do? Well, what's the number? What's the number of good things you have to do to keep God happy with you? What's the number of good things that you've got to do every week so that everything is okay? The Bible doesn't say that number, and it's because there isn't a number. Is it, is it seven? Is it one a day? Would it be two a day? He has sanctified by a single offering and perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected and he has sanctified. Think about this. Now, these are two things that he says here, two things going on. We are perfected and we are being sanctified. We're a work in progress. God is changing our heart. He is molding our heart. He is making us more into his image all the time. But it doesn't mean that our forgiveness is somehow not complete. See, our forgiveness in Christ is fully done and fully complete. Our future is secure in Christ's work on the cross. And as the author of Hebrews has said here over and over again, it doesn't have to happen again. What he did on the cross, dying for us, is once for all, So we shouldn't keep trying to nail him back there again and again. Friends, if you know Christ, everything ahead of you is secure in his hand. You can never be taken away from him. Your relationship with him can never be changed. He is your father. You are his child. The inheritance that he has promised is yours. We're fully ransomed. But our sanctification is a lifelong process. He's daily working in our heart. He's molding and shaping us into the image of his son. And we don't wake up one morning and have it all together. I think there's a lot of Christians who get depressed about that fact. They say, you know, God has saved me. But why don't I look more like him or or more like her? Or more like this person. Or more like this Christian. Why why do I not act more like them? Well, friends, they are just further along the journey than you are. There's a lot of people who have it a lot more together than I do. There's a lot of people who probably have it a lot more together than you do. God has been working in their heart longer. He's been shaping it longer and molding it longer. We don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden, here we are, super Christian who has it all together. We've got the whole Bible memorized. We, we know each and everything. We spend half our year on mission trips. We know everything that's going on. That's not how it works. It's a process by which God is changing us where he's making our hearts better. And then thirdly, it's good news for us because God's covenant is written on our hearts. Look in verse 16. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's quoting here this promise of a new covenant from Jeremiah 31. Remember the old law. 
was written on tablets of stone. You know, Moses goes up on the mountain, and he, he gets them, and he comes back down, and, and here it is. This, is. this is what God has said, and you've got this tablet as a, a, a symbol of what God has said to you. But he promises with this new covenant that he's going to take his law and he's going to write it on our heart and on our mind. And what good news that is for us. He also tells them from Jeremiah 31 and verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The thing, the one thing that broke our relationship with God was our sin. And God just takes that one thing that's in between us and he removes it. Think about that. Think about how many of your relationships have been permanently severed because of one thing. Now there might be little acts here and little acts there and all these things, but they all flow into one thing. Just one. And that relationship is severed, done, sometimes permanently. Now think about the egregious nature of our sin toward God. That one thing, one very big thing. And God takes it. And he says, I don't remember he says, I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember this anymore. I, I, don't, I don't remember that you've ever done this. I, I don't remember that you've ever done anything wrong. He says, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Friends, that's good news. That's good news because without that fact, we would still have that sin hanging over our head. But it's been removed. And we have no need to continue trying to get this done on our own. So I would draw you back to my first question. And I would ask, what is the benefit of trying to get to God yourself? What does it gain you? What does it buy you? Think about it like this. Some of you are sitting here and you, you're thinking, Pastor, I know that I don't have to work my way to God. But some of you are thinking about your work as some type of offering for your sins. See, look in verse 18. He says, where there's forgiveness of sins... Or of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. See, some of you have thought at various points in your life, and maybe you continue to do, that you need to work your way to God. But some of you have been saved by God's amazing grace, and He has pulled you out of your sin. He has pulled you out of, of your wickedness and your despair, and He has saved you. But since He saved you, you've got it in your mind that somehow you need to pay off this debt. I've heard people who were, 
who were preaching say this, and I, I don't think they necessarily meant it, but it's what they said that you know they were they were whatever in their past. They were in jail, or they were a thief, or or they were a drug dealer, or alcoholic, or whatever. And so now they were they had been saved, and they had to 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 do something to make up for all that time and all those sins. And that's not the way God works. See, our our work and our gift to Him is an offering not for our sins, which have been paid for, but for the glorious redemption, for the goodness of our God because He is holy. See, when God forgives you, there's nothing left to offer for sin. God calls us rather to be a living sacrifice in Romans 12.1. He does not call us to work and live to appease Him, but rather it's an outflow of the fact that we have been forgiven. I would say this morning, some of you may need to consider why it is that you're doing the things that you are for God. Is it to make up for all this lost time? As if somehow God forgot about you until the point where he saved you. And now you've got to make up for that time that God missed. But, you know, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are created for good works. Not to make up for our sin. That's what the people tried to do in the Old Testament. And it didn't work. But rather we have been given his approval and he is pleased when we're in Christ. You know, some of you may have had, and I've seen this play out many times, you had a, a father or a mother who you really felt like you needed to please. You just, you had to please them. And often what happens is the more that you tried to please them, the less pleased they were. You made straight A's and one B, and they were caught up on the B. You got into a good college, but they thought you should have got in somewhere better. You married a, a great spouse, but, but they think, well, why didn't you marry this person or that person? If you didn't have a parent like that, I'm thankful for that, but many people do, where you just can't do enough. I think about all the times that my dad will tell me that he is proud of me. And oftentimes it'll be at, at some point, you know, when I'm graduating or, or you know, when, when one of our kids have been born or something like that. But what I know about my dad is that it has nothing to do with that accomplishment. It has everything to do with the fact that I'm his son. And in that moment... He may say that that's the point where he's proud of me, but I know that if I called him right now or if you called him right now, he would tell you the same thing, and I've not done anything great this weekend. That's how God interacts with us. He is proud of us, not because we got out and we gave the most money or we were at church the most times or we went on the most mission trips or we did the most this or that. God is proud of us because we are his children. And he loves us because we are his children. You know what happens when my dad comes to me and says that he's proud? I want to do something to hear that again. 
Not because I think that if I don't do anything else, somehow that pride is going to disappear. But because I like to hear his affirmation. Friends, that's why you and I work for God. Is because we are his children and we want to make our daddy proud. Not so he'll forgive us or not so that he'll like us. Because he has already forgiven us everything. And he loves us so much that he sent our older brother Christ to die for us. But we work for him. And we praise him. And we worship him. Because of the great love that he has already shown us. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're trying to work your way to God, it's not going to work. It's going to fail. And we could hear testimony around this room of people who have tried and failed over and over again. Our God has shown us grace by sending his son to die in our place. And he calls us to turn from doing it ourselves and believe in him. To turn from our own way and believe that his way is sufficient. And so this morning, as we close this service, if you're here and you're striving to do it on your own, stop. Quit. Don't do it anymore. Not because I said so, because that's what God's word has told you. Just stop and trust in him. If you don't know what that means, you can come and I will tell you. But friends, if you know Christ and you're trying to work to make him happy, no wonder you don't have any joy. No wonder you don't have any peace. The reason for our work, the reason for our efforts has to be because God loves us in spite of what we do. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful. We're grateful that you have poured out your love upon us. While we are, while we're so unworthy, we're so unworthy of your mercy and your grace. And yet you show us your love without end. You show us your love in spite of everything that we've done. God, my fear is that there are those here who are trying to work their way to you. God, I would just pray that you would point that out to them even this morning. That that idea is a shadow of the true thing which is that you have come to perfect us to sanctify us you have come to offer a sacrifice that was once for all that could never be repeated and that never had need of being being repeated God I just pray that you would work in hearts and minds this morning God there are some here you know their hearts. They're, they're working to seek your approval. But God, you call us to work because we stand approved. 
forgiven and loved. God, I just pray that as we have this time of invitation that each heart would respond in whatever way you call them. And God, I pray this in Christ's name this morning. Amen. I invite you to stand with me. Uh, We're going to sing something and I would ask you just to respond however God is leading you. But especially this morning, if you are here and you don't know him, if you're here and you're trying to work your way to God, you think there's a path where you can find him. I just want to promise you there's not. There's hope only in turning from that desire and trusting that he's enough. Would you respond as we sing?